Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... (laughs) Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> Hi, Mark Kenny here with another Democracy Sausage episode, which of course comes to you each week from the ANU. And I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Maria Tafaga from the School of Politics and International Relations. Uh, hi there, Maria. Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm great. Now, look, earlier this week, uh, the, the world apparently stopped, really. I suppose it was more like about 10 or 11 days ago now that it stopped with the death of uh, Queen Elizabeth II and the extraordinary reaction that that had and the culmination of it last night. I'm not sure whether you saw all of the uh, the, the funeral, Maria, but what did you make of the of the way Australia handled it and the and the the way the media handled it? It was pretty saturation level stuff, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I must admit, I was a little bit surprised by the sort of, I suppose extent of the coverage and the fact that it has uh, been sustained uh, for so for you know nearly 10 days now so that that was actually uh, interesting uh, to me like it is obviously a, a very sort of significant event but I guess it does sort of point to both the uh, crown's ability to generate majesty for itself uh, or and to replicate its own regime so it was an, it was an impressive lesson in political science it was actually wasn't it because it's almost like a um, if we think you know that sort of term we sometimes hear about for bushfires you know it's so intense it created its own weather this was an event so intense that it kind of created its own it generated its own interest uh, going along and and the, the media organisations surrendered to that because that's what they perceived viewers and readers wanted. But a lot of the coverage was deeply uninteresting, I thought. And you know, incremental uh, in- incremental developments were report- reported as if they were huge and interesting. Anyway, look, the point is really for us is that uh, the world didn't stop. Uh, in fact, it kept on heating, which is going to be the subject of what we're talking about today. And to do that, we're going to talk to another ANU scholar, Dr. Joelle Gerges. She's an award-winning climate scientist at ANU's Fenner School of Environment and Society. 
She's also served as lead writer of the sixth uh, IPCC report, and her latest book is called Humanity's Moment. Now, Joelle, congratulations on this book, and welcome to Democracy Sausage, I should say, first. Thanks, Mark. It's really great to be here. And look, when I say congratulations, I really mean that because it's a, an extremely important topic, obviously. That's, that's, that goes without saying, climate change and, and where we are, where the world is, and how we, how we address this problem. But I also say congratulations because it's, it's a beautifully written book, and, and there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, no use having a good message if it's buried in, in, in sort of, uh, you know, un, un, sort of unreadable prose or whatever. And this is not that at all. This is a book that, that takes you right in. And so, uh, I, I very much want to make that point for anyone who's looking uh, to read this book in the future as a result of this discussion, hopefully. Uh, it's one of the things you'll notice straight away as a reader is you'll open it up and you'll find yourself on page 10 already, you know, without realizing that you're already reading it. Uh, and that's a great recommendation for a book. One of the, one of the things I like about the way you open it is that you talk about this morning, and I, as a Canberran, I very much understand this, this morning in, in I think it's the winter of, of, of 2020, and you've got to get up and do something. Just take us into that moment. So in 2020, obviously, the world was turned on its head with the coronavirus pandemic. And at that time, I was part of this United Nations climate report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's Sixth Assessment Report. And as a UN process, previously, we had met in persons. We'd had three lead author meetings. But when the pandemic hit, we had we had to turn to, to meeting online. And so in that winter of 2020, uh, for me, as a Southern Hemisphere scientist, that meant getting up at five in the morning and getting uh, logging onto my computer and sitting there talking uh, to my colleagues all over the world uh, around the state of the, the planet, really. And, and, and that went on for a really long time. Uh, as we had, we had to basically adapt our uh, operations to be able to adjust for not being able to meet in person. And so if you can imagine, there's 260 different authors from about 44 different countries, I think it was, and there's about 12 of us from Australia. And so very often the time zone didn't um, work in our favor. And so that sometimes meant six o'clock on a Friday night, that meant 5 a.m. on a Saturday morning, or 3 a.m. sometimes on a Wednesday. Uh, obviously, yeah. that, was, that was really difficult. And I'm not sure that many people fully appreciate that the IPCC authors uh, are volunteers. Right. So none of us actually get paid for that work. Yeah, so it's over and above your, 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 whatever your paid work is. Yeah, exactly. So as an academic here at the ANU, that um, I, I'm, I'm a lecturer and I'm also a research scientist. So it was like having a, a fairly full-time job on top of a very full-time job. So it was a pretty intense uh, three and a half years. Yeah. And uh, I particularly like the way you paint the picture about <laughs> what was, I think you described it as. Um, you, you, you know, your alarm went off, and you could feel that choice you could make between staying in the what was it, duck feather cocoon of bed, or or getting up and talking about this stuff. Uh, and we'll come a, a bit later to how difficult it is to talk about this stuff because you you address that also in your book. And Maria, feel free to jump in at any point here, but I'll, I'll just uh, kick off with, I guess, what's a pretty first principle sort of question, right? Which is about the fact that the, the globe is warming, is heating, as we now say. The figure is 1.09 degrees since industrialization. I know that this gets said a lot, but I'm going to say it anyway and allow you to address it. Some people will say that doesn't seem like a huge amount if we're talking about since industrialization. That's a significant period of time. How much of it can we put down to human, you know, how much of it is anthropogenic? 
So one of the key conclusions of the six assessment report is that effectively every part of the planet now has a human fingerprint on it. So we've actually warmed by about 1.2 degrees Celsius since the uh, Industrial Revolution. And as we can see, we're already starting to see escalating extremes in various parts of the world. And, and different scientific approaches have been applied in recent years, really over the last sort of 10 to 15 years, that could actually pinpoint the fraction of human warming that's attributable to a particular, say, um, extreme bushfire season or a flood event. And so that, that science has actually progressed a lot. And one of the things that the IPCC report actually really clearly shows is that there is not a single continent or ocean basin on the planet that has not been influenced by human-caused warming. And in fact, for the first time, so these IPCC reports have been going since 1990, but for the first time, we're able to say definitively that human influence on the climate system is now an established fact. So that's really strong language for the IPCC. And, and basically, we've got to the point now where we have been able to amass so much information and evidence to be able to come to that conclusion. So while it might not sound like a lot, if you think about just how sensitive the climate system actually is, even to a, a fraction, one tenth of a degree of warming, then we really start to realise just what's at stake. So if at 1.2 degrees of global warming, we're experiencing these sorts of extremes, and for instance, the, the black summer is one that I often talk about because in a single bushfire season, we saw 25% of Australia's temperate forest burn in one season. That killed or displaced about 3 billion animals. And now on the east coast of the country, koalas are actually an endangered species. That, that, that's an incredible thing to stop and get your head around. And at the same time as well, since 2015, we've seen 50% of the Great Barrier Reef actually die off. And that doesn't include the, the two most recent mass bleaching events in 2020 and 2022. So that's an underestimate. So we're effectively seeing large-scale ecosystem collapse. And, and I think for many Australians, they're starting to get an inkling that something is a bit of a miss, that yes, we have had extreme weather in the past, but now it's, it's really gone to, uh, I guess, uh, the next level. And so it turns out that this is part of what we expect with a warming world, and it is consistent with what we see in other parts of the world as well. And so my experience with the IPCC was really being able to contextualise what was happening here in Australia. And as an Australian scientist, I think that for me was the turning point where I realised the average person does not really fully appreciate just how serious the situation is and just how non-linear change can be. So the, our, our history is not necessarily the best indication of what we might experience in the future. And the fact that you can have these really major impacts in just such a short period of time, I think for me, was really the motivation for why I decided to put aside my own research and write this book. Because unless people more broadly understand just how urgent, severe, and widespread the impacts are, then we're not prepared. Do you think that the sort of, you know, the language that scientists use, they use words like theory, probability, likelihood. Do you think that, um, and, you know, they're very careful and cautious about, you know, claiming what, uh, you know, climate events can be attributed to humans and, and, you know, whether or not a disaster can be attributed to climate change and so on and so forth. Do you think that has actually been a real hindrance to where public debate is at and and what is the discussion within the scientific community about this? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. So I think it is really important that we are able to 
really drill in and, and get a sense of just how much of a particular event is attributable to human activity. But actually, it's becoming more and more of a moot point because all of weather, all of our weather and climate is now occurring on the background of a planet that's warmer. And so it might be that it will take, in some instances, for, for instance, looking at the rainfall signal, say, in eastern Australia, because there's a lot of inherent natural variability. We are the land of drought and flooding rains. Um, it's embedded. So the global warming signal is actually embedded in that natural variability signal. And it may be that we look back in hindsight, perhaps from the 2040s, and can statistically distinguish it from noise. Um, but then it's, it's, it's just a bit too late at that point, right? So, so we know that temperature extremes are very clearly, um, have clearly emerged from the climate record. And in fact, precipitation extremes have occurred and emerged in, in uh, about 60% of the globe as well. So it's one of these things that I think has really come about from, I suppose, the history of the public discussion of climate change. And let's be honest, there's been vested interests in, in wanting to cast doubt on the science. So the whole field of extreme event attribution has come about from trying to be really precise about the, the fraction of a particular event that was uh, influenced by global warming. But the further and further we go down this track, it, it's really clear that things are happening in ways that are rapid, they are nonlinear, and in many ways they're unexpected. So, I mean, they're consistent with, with the, the projections and, and the theory. But for me as a scientist, even just in the process of writing this book, I was truly amazed at just how much unfolded just in the course of me being involved with the IPCC. So really getting back to your question, I think it is sometimes we shoot ourselves in the foot as climate scientists because I think, I mean, the very nature of science is, is, is very conservative. It's very slow. And that's really important because good science takes time. But at this point, I think people like me and others are coming out to help people join the dots as events are unfolding. And it may be that we need to wait until we have every single scientific paper published, but then is it too late? And I would argue that at this point, we have more than enough evidence amassed from not only here in Australia, but all over the world. We know that humans are warming the planet. We know that it's starting to cause instability in major components of the Earth's system. And we know that how bad we let things get is still in our hands. And I guess as an IPCC scientist, sometimes it's um, disappointing to see the public commentary saying that we're all doomed, there's nothing we can do about it. And that really just plays into the hands of, of people that want to maintain the status quo. So from my perspective, as a scientist who's been involved deeply in this process, I guess I would like to convey our community's message, which is that there isn't, we're not looking down the barrel of runaway climate change and the inevitability of an unlivable future. But unless we turn things around, that probability gets higher. And that's why we use those probabilistic and those likelihood statements in the IPCC report, because we try and quantify wherever we can, which I think is actually important. But, you know, those probabilities start to escalate with high levels of warming. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because I, mean, I think Maria's point is a, a very good one that the language of science and like the language of medicine and and, and range of other scientific based disciplines are going is always going to have probability based uh, conclusions when you're piling up evidence and you're weighing it up and you're assessing 
what does it, what does this point to? What does this say? And there's you know there's a ninety eight percent probability that it says this. That means there's a there's a there's a two percent chance that it doesn't. The, the whole doubt industry has sort of created around this. So there's been a media opportunity in a commercial sense, but there's also been ideological uh, basis for some of this stuff. And that doubt has also probably been fed sometimes by some of the language that's been used by uh, climate scientists, quite understandably. But it's like what's good science might not necessarily be what's good PR, if I can put it like that. But also probably by some early overreach as well. You know, some attribution, as you described it, of a single event to climate change or predictions that didn't come to pass. I mean, you remember Tim Flannery's, uh, you know, uh, statement, I think it was back in 2007, sometime like that, where he said that, that, you know, the dams would basically never fill again. You know, it's sort of understandable on the basis of what he could see at that point. But of course, it got used to then suggest that. There's a whole lot of doomsaying going on by scientists and none of this stuff comes to pass. Therefore, you don't have to worry about the other things that are being said either. Yeah, look, that, that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I suppose it's important to just have a look at the credentials of the people making those statements. I mean, Tim is a fantastic contributor to public debate, but Absolutely. he's not a climate scientist. He's the first person to, to uh, put that forward. So I have a lot of respect for Tim. I think he, I'm not entirely sure what the the background for those statements well, were. Well, I think it had to do time. with 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 soil drying and soil temperature, you know, so that the 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 the, soil, the land's ability to hold water because of higher evaporation was such that it was going to, you know, be more difficult for those catchments to fill up and for dams to fill up and so forth. I mean, there may have been some basis for it uh in some people's opinion, but I don't think in the end uh, it obviously, it didn't transpire that way, and then it gets used as see that you know they they were all telling you the sky was going to fall in and it didn't. Therefore, you don't have to worry about what they're saying now. Okay, so what how I would respond to that is when you actually look at the IPCC assessment report, it is collated by hundreds of scientists. It's not the public. It's not the opinion of one single person. So as I said, the author team is around about two hundred. I think it was two hundred sixty six for volume one, which is the physical science basis. That was the one I was involved in, and it went out to peer review. And we had to respond to 75,000 different reviewer comments. So just to give you an indication, it's not the opinion of one scientist, it's our consensus document. Yeah, and that's a really important point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And I think that that's really why the IPCC has been necessarily conservative, because we need to always stick to the evidence base. And trust me, the truth is bad enough, yeah. Yeah. right? So there's no need to exaggerate. There's no need to, uh, to, to over reach as, as you as you phrased it look but personally i feel that the ipcc is is really a gift to humanity it is done voluntarily as i said it happens every 7 years and it's a global stock take of the state of the planet and what it says is that the planet is is warming we're causing it and the impacts are escalating and will continue continue to escalate uh, with every fraction of a degree of warming and so that's basically where we are so I think some of these conversations are a little bit outdated in the sense that we were having this is it real conversation around about 10 years ago and I personally had a lot of um, attacks and, and freedom of information requests and a lot of concerted effort to try and trip me up in my own work around that attribution work that I was doing in, here in the Australian region. And I'm pleased to say that that has shifted in, in, in really in the last decade. There, there are going to be some people who never are going to be on board with this. But my, my response to that is that whether or not you understand the science or whether or not you believe in the science, a phrase I really 
don't like yeah, that much, yeah. it's still going to happen. Yeah, that's right. Because well, it's look, physics, right? You yeah, can't argue right. with physics. That's right. And that's actually what's changed, I think, particularly, and, and you were sort of covering some of this before in terms of the frequency of events and the severity of, of the change and so forth. The evidence is in front of people now and whether they're reading IPCC reports or believing what they hear on the media, they're, they're certainly seeing now and it's becoming so much harder to to deny. That's right. And and just getting back to the attribution side of things, there's now an entire chapter dedicated to extreme event attribution, chapter 11 in working group one. There's a whole chapter now dedicated to that. That just gives you an indication of how much science has been done uh, since the last assessment report came out in 2013, just to give you an indication of how fast the science is moving. But again, it's really consistent with what we expect. But what surprises me is, is the speed. Let's just take a quick break and be back in a moment. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. We were talking about the you know the speed and the severity of climate change of global heating. One of the things, as I was saying, is we were both saying is that uh, you know the evidence is there in front of people now. Uh, people can see that, that you know we've seen what happened in Europe over the European summer. You know, London having forty degree days and and uh, similar sort of record temperatures all over Europe. Uh, we've seen you know flooding in Pakistan. I mean, the, the, the weather is is kind of right up the top of the news bulletins these days because weather has become extreme, which is you know really your point. In Australia, we are now facing a third consecutive year of a La Nina event, and of course we know what that's been like over the last couple of years, and people are now very nervous about that. So there it is, right? It's 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 right in front of people now. Absolutely, and I think for me, in the final stages of copy editing this book. The Eastern Australian floods played out uh, as I was working on this. And I actually have family from Lismore. So my husband's family is from Lismore and they have been displaced as a result of this, this flood event. And when you actually look at the numbers, I drilled down. I actually wrote a few pieces. I wrote something for the monthly and I, I wrote um, something recently for the Saturday paper on this. The, the margins by which these records were broken were staggering. When Lismore was flooding, just a, a little town called Danoon, just to the north of Lismore, received 775 millimetres of rainfall in a 24-hour period. Now, that's the annual total rainfall of the city of Melbourne or the city of London in a single 24-hour period. That has absolutely transformed landscapes, societies. People don't know whether they can rebuild there. When I drove through Lismore when we went to see family, I, 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 I cried, to be honest. Like The town is gutted. Every single business, shop, 
has just been completely uh, decimated. And it, and it really looks like a war zone. And it's something you don't expect to see in a country like Australia. And for me, it was just the clearest signal yet for me on a personal level, I suppose, that climate change is not just about numbers. It is about the people and the places that you love. And until we get that in our head, then I really don't think we're going to get the traction we need to turn this around. Because I think that, you know, from the policy perspective, a lot of people don't really emotionally engage with electric vehicles and solar panels. I mean, it's really important to do. I think it's one step back that I try and talk about in my book is that until we actually have an emotional response to this, to realize that we, we're quite literally at this really fateful fork in the road where humanity has to decide collectively whether we destabilize the Earth's planetary system, the climate system, and and that's a, that's a dramatic thing to actually get into your mind that every single decision that has ever been made to exploit the natural world has led us to this moment. It is it's literally led us to the moment where the ice sheets are thawing at rates that are really causing a cascade of changes, not only in sea level, but also, also in ocean circulation, which in turn influences rainfall patterns. Uh, and and, and the, the impact of that is, is vast and it's monumental. Well, that La Nina, for example, is because of ocean temperatures in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Oceans, which are higher than normal, only need to be fractionally higher, and it starts to have it because of the scale of these weather of these systems, these uh, atmospheric and water systems. Absolutely, and the conditions we're experiencing right now is a combination, as you say, of both Pacific and Indian Ocean variability, but ocean heat content is the highest it's ever been. Yeah. So we're talking about a warming planet plus natural climate variability equals unprecedented extremes. So just for the listeners, for the benefit of the listener here, the current La Nina event is considered weak when you look back through the historical record. So I find that particularly interesting because what happens when you actually get a strong event? So if this is weak now, a weak event with global warming is is now what an extreme event was like in that sort of pre-industrial or early 20th century period. To me, that's really scary actually, because it means that we start to see these surprise impacts, a bit like what we saw in Lismore, where you know the river record um, the river height record was broken by a full two meters. That is that, that that's just catastrophic levels of you can't even be prepared for that. So my point is is that there, there is this nonlinear change. Global warming is influencing natural variability, and that's actually the, the cutting edge of the science right now. So understanding how these interactions between these weather and climate influence society. So that, that's really where the science is. Maria, um, it, it, the point Joel makes about uh, that emotional response and about understanding the, the change that has occurred as a result of big events like uh, the the the, uh, the floods that we were just discussing, like the Black Summer bushfires, these things have had a quite material effect on the public understanding, and we've seen that show up in the political system, don't you think? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what is actually kind of interesting about this from a public opinion perspective is it's sort of a twofold thing. You know, we do sort of see the, the political system respond when climate events make uh, climate change potentially salient. You know, we saw that with the millennium drought. Uh, we saw that with the last round of droughts, and we've sort of seen that consistently with the with the sort of successive biblical level disasters that we have actually experienced now for the last three 
summers. What is actually really kind of interesting is the fact that political leaders in general have actually kind of really struggled to talk about climate change in the terms that Joelle just spoke about then, which is connecting climate change to objects of love. Because that is actually like I am not a political psychologist or a psychologist, but you know, that is basically what that literature sort of says is that that is the way to get people to engage with what is actually like either extremely dense information or extremely frightening information. I mean, you know, Mark, you mentioned, uh, you know, floods in Europe and we've been talking about floods in Australia. But if you actually just watch SBS News for one week, you will actually see that there is a climate-related disaster on every continent uh, happening every day. And we're going to see more wars and more security threats as a result of this kind of change in our climate as it changes the way people can access basic resources that, you know, their survival is attached to. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And I also get quite stressed out when I watch the SBS news, but I watch it because I think it's so important to really get a sense of the fact that climate change is compounding existing societal issues. People talk about climate change as being a threat multiplier. So there's still going to be war and conflict out there in the world, but climate change is making uh, our ability to to really live within those habitable limits of reliable rainfall and uh, sort of expected temperatures and all that sort of thing is starting to shift. And this is, I guess, what people like me are trying to say is that we need to approach this with our eyes wide open. This is not going anywhere. This is only going to get worse. And and really. I guess coming back to one of the main messages of the IPCC report, how bad we let things get is still in our hands. So we don't have to accept the foregone conclusion of an apocalyptic future unless we collectively choose to do so, right? And this is why it, it stops being a scientific issue and it starts becoming more of a political social issue. And economic as well because the, the area Certainly. you were talking about in Lismore, for example, I mean, you've got vast numbers of people whose houses are uninsurable because of yep. they're effectively now in floodplains even if they weren't. They might have been in a one in 100-year floodplain before but no insurer is going to look at it like that anymore because of these changing variabilities and that background condition you're talking about. So it's it's a, it's a that's a massive economic issue as well and that's just one dimension of that economic issue. Absolutely. And this is going on everywhere around the world. So this is compounding existing inequality. It's an opportunity. And so, I mean, certainly the economic argument is there, but I would argue one step back from there are the things we value. Are we all okay with the fact that, for instance, the largest living organism on the planet, which is the Great Barrier Reef, is dying on our watch, will be gone within a handful of decades. Well, the right's argument about that is that Australia contributes 1% to global warming. This is the standard argument you hear on sort of Sky After Dark and places like that. What do you say to that argument, that Australia can't alter the the uh, the, the sort of global When you actually add up all of the nations that contribute less than 1%, collectively that's around about 40% of emissions. So I don't buy that argument. That is, that's a cop-out from my perspective. And I guess from working at that United Nations the level- The irony is that it also accepts- Global warming, you know, implicit within it, we can't do it because you know we're only contributing this much. It's sort of well, that's where we need to sure. That's where we need to change our mindset and realize that we really have to tap into this sense of global citizenry and leadership. And leadership, right? We we could have been showing leadership on this for years, but instead we've been, you know, having an internal bun fight about it uh, for you know for, for 
shallow political reasons. That's right. But it's also that, you know, it's it's about what society is engaged in, what things that we are interested in, in, in discussing publicly and where we see, um, you know, do we care enough about it? A lot of people are really switched off. A lot of people are really disengaged for a variety of different reasons. And I appreciate that, that to some degree. But on the other side of that coin is that a lot of people have children. A lot of people maybe don't realize that, say, for instance, the black summer becomes average summer conditions by 2040 and a cool summer by 2060, right? Just to give you an indication. That's just an appalling concept to to put in your mind, isn't it? Right. And that's why I'm trying to put that in people's minds because, you know, you you can run but you can't hide, unfortunately, with this stuff. And we're at the point now where we've run for such a long time. Like IPCC first came out, the first assessment report came out in 1990, right? And so we're at this point now where there's literally, we're literally destabilizing the Earth's climate. It's a, it's a horrific thing to, to contemplate and to really allow yourself to absorb. But we do need to just face the reality of that. And then from there, we need to think about what we want to do about it. And at this stage, at this stage, it's really the next decade where we're either going to turn it around or we're not. And hence uh, your your uh, title, Humanities Moment. You say we're really in that window at the moment and we face that critical decision. And it's a tipping point, is it? I mean, in the sense that the that the compounding effects of not doing not addressing this could lead to even greater levels of chaos and and uh... well, we can see what we've already experienced with one point one at one point two degrees of warming. So at one point five, what are we going to get at one point five? At two degrees? At three degrees? At four degrees? Right now, currently implemented policies see us warm between about two and four degrees. If you look at the net zero uh, targets, if they're all implemented, we're still looking at two, two degrees of global warming, which is a catastrophic outcome for the planetary system because it turns out that the ice sheets are really quite sensitive and you start to see this escalating impact. The reason why those numbers exist, the 1.5 and 2, is they're scientifically generated numbers, right? So they are basically saying when we look at the Earth's system, not only from its theoretical and physical aspects of it, but also looking at the Earth's geologic past, between 1.5 and 2 degrees, you start seeing instability. Between 2 and 3 degrees, you see major, major issues, particularly in the ice sheets. And, and then when you start to see sustained warming around those levels, then you irreversibly are melting places like Greenland, the West Antarctic, and, and collectively, and changing ocean currents. That's right, yeah. exactly, which, exactly. Which can have all kinds of perverse effects. Yeah. So the reason why we want to stay away from those numbers is because we know that the system becomes more unstable. Every fraction of a degree matters is is really one of the key messages from the IPCC report. So I know it doesn't sound like a lot in terms of the actual absolute numbers that we're talking about here, but in terms of the planetary system, it's extraordinary to think just how quickly. And widespread the impacts have been uh, with the level of warming we've experienced so far. On a personal level, you, you write in the book, uh, and we sort of touched on this earlier on in the conversation, but you write in the book about how hard it has been to sort of compile these arguments, to put this information together into a narrative form. Just take us into that uh, into that for a minute. Sure. I think as a scientist, we compartmentalize the work that we do. And I did it too. I did it for most of my career, to be honest. And then the turning point for me was really the opportunity to work at the UN level, to collate information from all over the world, and then to really understand that this is happening 
everywhere. I think it was a moment for me where I realized that just absorbing information on an intellectual level isn't enough. It hasn't been enough to get people to to start to think about what to do about it. So for, for me, you know, logic and reason is extremely important. It's the bread and butter of what we do as scientists. But that's not to say that if you have an emotional response to the work, that somehow your professionalism goes out the window. Because if you think about, you know, a medical analogy where doctors and nurses who might be in a COVID ward, if they lost a whole, you know, bunch of their patients on their shift, they'd, they'd be deeply distressed by that. But no one would call them an alarmist. They would say they're compassionate beings who are dedicated professionals and they're heroes, right? Whereas climate scientists, unfortunately, there's this very unfortunate undermining of our work that has gone on in this country and elsewhere where we're considered alarmists. Now, as I said, if you stop and contemplate what I just said before about the fact that the largest living organism on the planet is dying, how can you not have an emotional response to that? I think for me, I realized, and this is why the book is set up, section one is called the head, section two is called the heart, and then section three is the whole. So the head is really all the intellectual, what, what, what's the latest in terms of the numbers? Tell it to me straight, there it is. Section two really deals with the heartbreak of that, the impacts on, the, on ecosystems and human societies. And then section three is about the whole. So it is this collective action that we need. And, and I talk about that as being, I guess, an integrated way of thinking about this problem because I think for far too long we've compartmentalized the environmental issue as being something that people who, for instance, aren't scientists don't really care about. Well, I guess I'm here to say that we're at this point now where we need everyone. We need everybody to engage in this because it quite literally is a, is a matter of either we pull back from this brink of planetary instability and we go down these apocalyptic pathways or we turn things around and we learn to live sustainably on this planet. The good news is that we can do this and human history is actually full of examples of social movements and change that have gone about in terms of improving our civil rights or gender equality. That It's never a done deal that this is going to be ongoing work, but it is meaningful work and it is the work of this time. And I've been thinking lately that the 2020s is really going to be looked back at as the decade where we either rose to the challenge or we didn't. It's, it's really that fateful. And so I, I suppose people in my position feel that. So you are asking me, how is it to, to be the bearer of bad news? It's not always easy. It's not easy to realize that what you're looking at is part of this pattern that you see and you've looked at your entire career. But it's now really unfolding in ways that I didn't expect to see probably maybe till the middle of 2040s, 2050s, when some of this stuff is playing out right now. It's like, well, then what's going to happen by the middle of the century? That, do that's we wake terrifying. up soon enough is the, is, the, is the thing, isn't it? Maria, do you, do you see prospect of this issue on the basis of this evidence that is piling up before our eyes or sort of, you know, rising sea levels and so forth? Do you see this issue sort of jumping out of its political taxonomy that it's been in until now, particularly in Australia, not exclusively, but particularly in Australia, where if you were of a progressive uh, disposition on a range of other issues, you were likely to be pro-action on climate change. And if you were conservative, for some bizarre reason, you were likely to be suspicious of the whole enterprise. Well, I, I guess I would say two things. The first is a, a simple one, which is that 
we were already kind of seeing that the Liberal Party lost its heartland, uh, in essence, to a wave of voters who have heard Joel's message and have voted accordingly. And, you know, many of the sort of arguments that you were sort of referring to before, Mark, on Sky After Dark, well, that's just sort of the latest move in that campaign, which is, you know, to delay. So, you know, denial is no longer a viable strategy. So now it's all around delay. And if you look at the sources of our wealth in this country, it's not sort of surprising why um, we have struggled particularly as a nation to even kind of get to the sort of rhetorical point that, say, places like the UK are who have, in effect, shut down their coal industries and are winding down their gas industry, for example, sake. Um, but I think that the, the real challenge is, is that, you know, as a human society um, with, uh, you know, I guess ideas around individual dignity and you know, the, the capacity and power of the state, we still cannot agree to, you know, ensure that no one lives in poverty in countries that are more wealthy and more fabulously wealthy than we ever have been. And so without wanting to be sort of too depressing, the, the debate kind of needs to it's bigger than that, but I guess that's my point, right? Like as a human society, we struggle to look after our fellow man for even the most basic things like housing. And so one step removed when we're talking about the environment, it is actually one of the reasons why we really struggle to move past that. And that's why it actually all has to be linked to those people we love uh, you know, and their futures. And it's two steps removed anyway. It's two steps removed anyway. And that's also the problem in that it, the other, it's removed temporarily, temporarily as well, which is that often it's about doing things now to stop things happening in the future, which we're being told all the evidence points to these things happening, but it's in the future. And uh, humans have been quite good at putting off dealing with those things. And collectively, we, we, we can find comfort in each other putting it off. And uh, there's been a lot of that sort of inertia as well, Joel. Yeah, I, I guess I would like to just bring in another medical analogy at this point. It's like we've got a cancer diagnosis and we're basically saying, how far can we push off taking action and, and taking our treatment? Now, that's such a risky prospect. If you actually take action now, we might be able to reduce the severity of the impact. You might even be able to go into remission and deal with the situation in, in, a, in a, a staged and logical and controlled manner. But to be acting so recklessly, it's basically what we're, the conversation we're having right now is how far mm. down the track, how far can how we kick the can how, how down the road? How long can we delude ourselves, really? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess what I'm trying to say from the physical science perspective is that is baking in more heat into the system yeah. that will be with us for centuries. Exactly. It's prejudicial to that future. It's prejudicial delay, yeah. Look, uh, it's been uh, really great having you in, Joel. This is a, a really fabulous book, Humanity's Moment. Um, it's uh, a climate scientist's case for hope. Uh, it's, uh, as I say, it's a terrific read. It has, um, I think, some really great first-person kind of stuff in it in terms of how you how you come to this whole field of work, how you actually started off thinking about it, you know, dealing with bushfires in 1994, for example, when you were, I think, still at school. And there, and there was ash raining down, and that was the worst bushfire crisis Australia had faced to that point, I think, in terms of scale of damage, was it not? Yeah, exactly yeah. right. So that was my black summer moment. A yeah. lot of young people today will remember this time yeah. as being really influential. And I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is that 
just getting really clear on the fact that we are living through the most significant moment in human history. I'm going to call it. It really is. Yeah. And, and I think it's about how we show up and think about all the ways in which we can influence um, the, the, the networks that we're a part of and, and actually choose to, to handle this in a way that is a lot more managed and a lot more inspiring and telling ourselves better stories. So instead of just thinking about the inevitability of the continued exploitation of fossil fuels, we're also the sunniest continent on the planet. Mm. So we could be a renewable energy superpower and so on and so forth. And the list goes on and on and on. There's sorts of things I talk about yes. in my book. But I guess just to make the point that it doesn't have to all be doom and gloom here. We can actually choose to make this a moment of creating a future that we actually want to live in. Thank you very much. Thanks, Maria, also for your contribution. My pleasure. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Until then, bye for now. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.